Dr. Guy Leschzener, it's brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. I've got so many things to ask you, but I can only ask them within the 20 questions. One thing I want to point out beforehand, of course, is that anything we talk about isn't a substitute for people seeing a doctor if they've got a medical complaint. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair, Matthew, yeah. Okay, that doesn't count as a a first question. (laughs) My first question is to ask you, who are a consultant neurologist and an expert in sleep, to explain to us, if you can, just what it is you do and and what your areas of expertise are. Yeah, so I'm a clinical neurologist and I work at one of the teaching hospitals in in central London. Um, I see patients with a variety of different neurological disorders, but with a particular focus on sleep disorders, neurological sleep disorders. So the kinds of things that cause people to do odd things at night or to be excessively sleepy or to have difficulties with their sleep. Um, I also specialize in epilepsy. So I see a a, a cohort of individuals who have uh, epileptic seizures or uh, collapses of unknown cause, but may also have sleep issues as well. What is sleep? Mm, Well, I think that that's a pretty difficult question to answer within the context of this program because it's a very long answer sleep is uh, not simply just a question of your brain switching off to allow your brain and your body to rest but actually we know that sleep is an incredibly active process there are lots of different stages of sleep and um, those probably have different functions in fact sleep in itself has got an absolute multitude of functions, be it uh, restoration of of neurological function, cleansing out uh, aspects of the brain, um, and also involved in memory consolidation, in regulation of our immune system, in regulation of our cardiovascular system. So essentially, sleep is a fundamental aspect to uh, every single part of our waking lives. What is insomnia? Hmm. So insomnia really just describes the phenomenon of having either very limited sleep uh, with the adequate opportunity to sleep or the fact that your sleep is of poor quality and is unrefreshing in nature without any clear physical underlying cause. So it's a very broad brush. And from a clinical perspective it's really a bucket term for a whole host of uh, of other processes that give rise to difficulty falling asleep difficulty staying asleep or waking up very early usually feeling unrefreshed during the day how advanced are we at curing insomnia or at least mitigating insomnia how much more work is there to be done and what can already be done Yeah, so in the olden days, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, essentially uh, an individual would have gone to their GP and would have said, look, I have terrible problems sleeping, and they would have been prescribed some sedative drugs. Um, Now, those sedative drugs had their issues with them. They are potentially habit-forming. They're potentially addictive. They potentially wear off over time. And so it was very recently recognized that actually there were alternatives to the use of drugs for insomnia. Now, we think that in the majority of individuals with insomnia, this is a a learned pattern. The brain is a creature of habit. 
And uh, sleep is a, a function of habit as well. And for many individuals, it, it's uh, usually the case that actually what happens with time is that that habit of dropping off to sleep when your head hits the pillow and waking up when your alarm goes off or when it's time to wake up it, it is something that goes awry. So over recent years, there's been a lot of focus on non-drug-based treatments, treatments that aim to restore normal sleep rather than simply sedating or tranquilizing you with the drugs. And perhaps the gold standard these days is a non-drug-based treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is really a multifaceted approach to try and retrain your brain to sleep normally. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia actually works for the majority of individuals. It works rather well for up to 80% of individuals. But there are a significant proportion of individuals who might require additional drugs or may actually not respond to any of the standard treatments. And so in answer to your specific question, yes, there is an awful lot more to be done because there remains a cohort of individuals in whom insomnia is very difficult to manage. What's happening when we're dreaming? So I think the short answer is we don't fully know. We know that actually dreaming is most strongly associated with a stage of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep. So this is the stage of sleep during which we are completely paralyzed. The only muscles that continue to work are muscles that allow us to breathe and the muscles that move our eyes, which is why it's termed rapid eye movement sleep. And we think the rapid eye movement sleep is crucial to the learning of new information, that actually what's happening during the cycles between REM sleep and other stages of sleep is that uh, essentially information is moving from our short-term memory and is being consolidated in our long-term memory. Now, why we should dream, why we should have these experiences that we're aware of during rapid eye movement sleep is less clear. And one of the interesting theories is that uh, essentially we all need to have a model of the world that we inhabit in that when we perceive reality during waking hours, uh, essentially what we're doing is we are basing our sensory inputs upon this model of the world that allows us to predict what it is we're likely to see or hear or feel or touch. And so it may be that actually what dreaming represents is that process of tweaking that model of our internal world uh, so that we can refine that according to our experiences over the course of that day, the course of that month, or the course of our whole lifetime. What's deep sleep? So deep sleep really is a descriptor for a, a stage of sleep called slow wave sleep or a stage three sleep. So this is very different from REM sleep. In REM sleep, the brain looks to be very wide awake, actually, when we study it from an electrical perspective. The brain rhythms that we see in, in REM sleep are very fast. They're of small amplitude. They look very similar to the waking brain. In non-REM sleep, actually, what we see is that the brain waves slow down. Everything uh, settles a little bit. And we think that actually that deep sleep is probably the stage of sleep that is most important for restoration, for regulation of the immune system, uh, for actually cleansing substances from the brain. So there is a system within the brain 
which is called the glymphatic system, which is involved in removing the buildup of products that have uh, occurred over the course of the waking day. And those channels are open up in deep sleep. So it's clear that actually deep sleep, as well as its role in learning and memory, also has a role in maintenance, essentially housekeeping of the brain and housekeeping of the body as well. Is there quite a bit of disagreement out there on issues regarding sleep, such as whether, I don't know, eight hours or whatever it might be is an an ideal amount of sleep, or whether there's such a thing as beauty sleep, whether sleeping before midnight is beneficial, whether it's good or not to have 20 minute naps during the day, whether it matters whether you sleep at night or whether you sleep during the day. Is there quite a bit of disagreement about this? How much do we think we know about it? Well, I think there's not necessarily disagreement but what's quite clear is that many of the studies don't um don't agree and that is sometimes due to the way that those studies are done it's sometimes due to the populations in which those studies have been uh performed and and so there are many things that are put out there as as definitive whereas in in actual fact the information that we have is not quite as definitive i think we know in ballpark figures that actually if you're sleeping less than about six hours a night then that is potentially quite hazardous to your sleep and um but things like beauty sleep this this idea of an hour before midnight i think is very much um uh, it needs to be uh, evaluated on a person by person basis because we know that there are huge variations between individuals both in terms of how our body clocks are configured you know how much sleep we actually need which is often influenced by our genetics and what else is going on in our lives so i think that one of the big issues with sleep is that we take this information that is based upon population studies and try and apply them to one particular individual and that's not always the best way to do that just a follow-up question within within that question, just to clarify something. When you said, I think you said that we think we know that if you sleep less than, say, six hours, less than roughly six hours a night, yes. that can be hazardous to your sleep. What does that mean to be hazardous to your sleep? Hazardous to your health. Right. So, 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 health. So, so, so what I mean by that is that there are fairly consistent studies that show that if you sleep less than about six hours, that impacts your cognitive function. It impacts your cardiovascular health. It impacts uh, risk of things like blood pressure problems or diabetes, uh, and actually that it increases your risk of mortality. So regularly sleeping less than about six hours, and it seems that the cutoff is about there, although even that is not so clear cut, uh, is not good for you. What's happening when someone is sleepwalking, do you think? Well, I think it's more than what I think. I think we we actually have some major insights into what's happening when people sleepwalk. So we, in addition to sleep being not one single state, that it's a series of states, we now know that actually different parts of the brain can exist in different stages of wake and sleep. And that actually during sleepwalking and and related conditions, what happens in those individuals is that actually certain parts of the brain remain in very deep sleep and the other parts of the brain exhibit waking-like behaviour. So the parts of the brain that often seem to be more awake are the parts of the brain that are responsible for emotion 
or movement, whereas parts of the brain responsible for rational thinking, for decision-making, tend to remain in very deep sleep. And it's that disconnect between the various parts of the brain that enable people to undertake some, sometimes some fairly complex tasks with limited or no recall at all, and that are not necessarily appropriate things to do in the middle of the night, like cooking or eating or walking around and fiddling with objects in the bedroom. We know that if you're under the influence of alcohol, you are responsible under the criminal law for what you do. Is that true of sleepwalking as well? Well, it, no, it's not actually. Uh, although this this is obviously a fairly controversial area of, of of forensic medicine. But but what's quite clear is that if your brain is functioning in a way that is not representative of how it would function during normal life, then uh, you know, one can't be uh, held criminally responsible, or at least it's a it's a mitigation for a particular act. I, I, I mean, I I liken it to, for example, individuals who've had a major brain injury and do odd things, or people who have had a seizure and are very confused, or people who have diabetes and they become profoundly low in in blood sugar and then act in a, a way that is not representative of their normal personality. It's really no different to that. The brain is not working in a normal way. And therefore, what you're doing, I think, it, it, it is not something that you can be held responsible for. Now, wh where it gets a little bit more tricky is that we know that in some individuals, alcohol, for example, can increase the likelihood of sleepwalking. And so, and if you know that you are likely to sleepwalk if you drink alcohol, then that makes things a little bit more complicated. It's also worth stressing, of course, that just because somebody sleepwalks and then they commit a criminal act in the middle of the night, that does not necessarily confirm the fact that they committed that act whilst they were sleepwalking. And, and, and that creates difficulties in the medical legal setting. You've recently done a, a Radio 4 series that has in, included issues of pain and how we experience pain and why we experience pain. And I think you concluded that there are certain experiences of pain that are not linked to a physical condition. So, for example, back pain or, or the extent of back pain may not be explained by something being wrong with your back. What's going on when that's happening? Yeah, so so it's important to remember that pain is a experience that is a, as a result of changes in the brain. We experience pain in the brain. We don't experience it in our peripheries. And there are many individuals out there who have ongoing chronic pain for which we can find no clear cause. Now, often that is preceded by some sort of physical injury. But despite the injury getting better, the pain very much persists. And we think that one of the potential causes for that is that essentially the when you feel pain, and indeed this is across the board in the nervous system, if a particular circuit within the nervous system is stimulated for a prolonged period of time, connections within that circuit are strengthened. And so you can imagine that if you have a significant injury and you have pain for a prolonged period of time, then those circuits generating the pain can continue to be highly active despite the original injury going away. 
and we we know that that is influenced by a variety of other factors so whilst that pain is very real that pain it's not imagined it's a very real pain it's a pain that is generated by the brain itself but what that does is it opens avenues to trying to treat that chronic pain because a lot of chronic pain is not amenable to treatment with drugs and does remain refractory despite people being on multiple drugs, even drugs like uh, opiates or or other very strong painkillers. And and actually by dealing with um, how the brain processes pain by the cognitive and the mood effects of pain, that can be a very useful strategy for dealing with some of these chronic pain syndromes. One view from that Radio 4 series expressed, I think, by one of your contributors was that medicine, of course, is a science up to a point, the understanding of the body, for example, but also is an art. Do you subscribe to that idea? And if so, what is meant by that? Yeah, and I, I wholeheartedly uh, um, subscribe to that because I think that it's, you know, you can be a fantastic scientist, you can know exactly what's happening to, you know, various parts of your body in terms of anatomy or physiology. But ultimately, when the person that is your patient is sitting in front of you in clinic uh, is complaining of a particular issue or has a particular medical disorder, you need to understand the totality of that patient. So it's not just the physiology. It's not just the anatomy. It's the psychology, their environment, their home circumstances, you know, their own views of uh, of their condition. And that's where, where the art comes in. Now, we have really good evidence that actually, you know, if you, for example, take individuals who've got arthritis in their knee, then actually just simply doing an x-ray or an MRI scan of their knee correlates really rather poorly with their own experience of their condition. Um, And actually, there are very, very strong influences from a whole range of external factors, or, you know, be those psychological, environmental, social, that actually have as strong an impact on their own experience of their condition as what we can see on an x-ray or an MRI. And that's very much across the board. It's not just the case in arthritis. It's pretty much the case in, in most medical conditions. You've also done a series for Radio 4 about the senses. What is your understanding about how our senses influence our understanding of reality? Yeah, so one of the things that becomes apparent when you see a lot of people with neurological problems is quite how fragile our uh, understanding of our reality is. And what I mean by that is that really very minor changes in terms of our bodies, the functioning of our neurological system, can dramatically alter the way that we perceive the world. But it's also very clearly the case that what the way that we experience the world is within the brain rather than through our sensory organs, our eyes, our ears, our nose, and and so on. And actually, the view of how we understand reality has changed substantially in that rather than the senses being the conduit for this external world entering into our consciousness, that actually the way that we experience the world is very different, that actually it's our it's our brains that reconstruct the world. And what they're doing is they're constantly seeking information from 
our sensory organs to tell our brains whether or not that prediction of the world that we inhabit is correct or maybe incorrect. And so this view that all the information is being gathered and conveyed into our brains in in order to understand our world is perhaps incorrect, that actually there is as much information flowing from the brain down as there is coming from the sensory organs up. How do you think about the imagination? How do you think about spirituality? How do you think about, if I can put it this way, the sort of non-clinical features of the brain? And, and by clinical, I don't, I don't actually mean clinical in a medical sense. But yes, I mean, no, I, you, you see what I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, there remains this kind of view of the separation of mind and body or mind and brain that you know the brain influences you know what we physically do um how how we sense how we feel those kinds of things and then there is the mind which is you know a a, a more spiritual um concept you know it influences uh, how we feel how we're sentient how we're conscious how we behave uh, and I think that for most neurologists, they would view, and I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues, but I think the majority view is very much that, you know, actually, essentially what we are is determined by our brain. It's determined by the very complex flows of information within our brain, the very complex anatomy and the physiology of our brains. It's just that we are really very much at our infancy in understanding that. And and I, I think that if you see enough individuals, you very clearly begin to see, well, look, there are neurological disorders that give rise to changes in our emotions, that give rise to changes in our behaviours, that give rise to experiences that we would quite frankly have previously called spiritual and if that's the case in individuals with neurological disorders, that actually changes within the brain can give rise to these kinds of aspects of the human experience, then it's likely that actually for all of us, these sorts of experiences are derived from the brain. And so this, this split between mind and brain is largely falling away. That was previously termed dualism. It's just that we don't have at the moment sufficient understanding of how the brain really works in order to fully understand how the brain defines everything. Is it a helpful way to look at the blurred lines, if I can put it that way, between the mind and the brain? The fact that we can get a headache that derives from stress, so from how we feel, but also we can get a headache from a knock on the head or from alcohol consumption from something, as it were, physically or chemically in, induced by an external substance. In other words, the brain, it's difficult to separate the, the brain from the mind. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to separate the brain from the mind. You know, look, I, I think that if you say to somebody, well, I think your serious symptoms are entirely stress-related, then I can fully understand why people might feel unhappy with that response because essentially in part that is related to stigma you know in that still within our society there is a very strong stigma associated with what is seen to be psychological or what is seen to be 
something that is within your control, quite incorrectly, by the way, I think. But actually, if you think about what we are beginning to know about the impact of our environment, the impact of our upbringing, of our family life, have on underlying biology, on the physiology of the brain, then one can begin to understand why these kinds of factors can influence our brain function. You know, I mean, nobody thinks twice about when, you know, when they're cold, they get goosebumps, or when they're scared, they get goosebumps. You know, this is a direct uh, representation of how our emotional state can influence our nervous system functioning. Nobody thinks twice about the fact that, you know, they say, well, when I'm stressed, I don't sleep properly. Sleep is, of course, a neurological function. And 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 so therefore, it's not at all surprising if you think about it that what else is going on on in our lives will directly impact how our body is functioning. Another question within a question. Therefore, I'm not counting it towards the twenty. <laughs> I just want to make sure that I was right when I said you can get a headache that derives from stress from how we feel. Is that is that correct? Is that is yeah. that is that clinically accepted? Yes, yes, absolutely. And in fact, we see that in migraine all the time. So individuals with with migraine are much more likely in some individuals to get a headache when they are stressed. Uh, the converse is also true in that there are some individuals who will get migraines when they're relaxed. And that used to be termed a Saturday morning headache because, you know, obviously during the week, people would be uh, stressed and working hard and then they'd have a line on a Saturday morning and then would wake up with a significant migraine headache. I want to ask you about migraine, migraine. It's incredibly frustrating for those of us who know someone who suffers from debilitating migraines, that something that is so mundane in the sense that it, 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 it's, such a, it, it's such a common thing that people suffer from, and therefore we kind of expect that science, that medicine would have got a, a proper handle on it, that we can get people to the moon, that we can video call each other from one side of the world to the other, that we can do all sorts of mind-bendingly exciting things with science, but we don't seem to have got a grip on migraines. And it just seems so frustrating that we haven't found a, a catch-all cure yet. Mm. And, I, and I think the likelihood is that we're not going to find a catch-all cure because the the, the underlying neurological processes behind migraine are myriad but but i think there are there are a couple of things specifically to that point the first thing is that you know part of the problem is that research in these kinds of conditions which are common um which are not necessarily life-threatening in the same way that things like ms or motor neurone disease and, and associated conditions are has had relatively little in attention, but that has changed quite dramatically over the last few years. And I've certainly got uh, a, a number of colleagues who've been working very hard on, on on understanding what is going on in migraine over the last few years. And even in the last five years, for example, there have been dramatic leaps forward in our understanding of what the basic biological processes are that underlie migraine that have resulted in the development of really new and novel therapies so one of the therapies that has now started percolating into the nhs for very selected groups of individuals is is a, a group of treatments called monoclonal antibodies which are antibodies that are specifically directed against a brain protein and treat those treat those migraines very very well so i think we're certainly not uh, at a point where we can um we can uh, cure migraine 
but I think huge steps forwards have been made. During the pandemic, we've seen conspiracy theories flourish, I think it would be fair to say. Now, science, an important part of science is scepticism. How do we make sure that important public health campaigns are not undermined by conspiracy theories, but that scepticism can still exist within science? Well, I think science has always been riddled with scepticism and with people who question what we think is true. And that's obviously a healthy thing. But what we need to be careful about is that in that questioning, we seek to disprove existing hypotheses based upon the evidence. And what is common in a lot of these conspiracy theories is that the evidence uh, that questions the scientific orthodoxy is either not there at all, or it's misconstrued, or it's quite frankly deliberate, uh, deliberately skewed. And, and so, so I think that is the difference between the conspiracy theory model of questioning everything that science is telling versus science itself. The NHS is going through a crisis, some would say an existential crisis. Why and how do you think we've got to where we are? You've worked in the National Health Service for a long time. I think there are a number of factors that have led to this situation. I think funding is important. And although the amount of money that we spend within the NHS has gone up, it's really not kept pace with advances in medicine, more expensive treatments, the fact that our populations have got much more elderly and associated with our increase in age, the complexity of the conditions that we see, the multiple conditions that we see has really increased massively. So I think that's the first issue. I think the second issue is that the pandemic has undoubtedly had a huge impact. I think an awful lot of staff are very burnt out. They've been working extremely hard in very, very difficult situations. And historically, I think the NHS has very much relied on goodwill, on people working above and beyond their hours, going beyond their simple duty to keep the system functioning. I think the problem is, is that to a large extent, people are so tired and dispirited at the moment that they're no longer doing that. And if the system has been reliant on goodwill for so long, then as soon as that goodwill is lost, the system falls apart. And I think that's a huge problem. It's an existential problem, as you say. So where do we go from now? Well, I think that we as a as a country, we as a population, need to have a very clear and frank discussion about the future of the NHS, what we want to preserve, and how we have to preserve it. Because quite clearly, at the moment, this situation is completely untenable. I want to just get an idea or a sense of you behind the doctor, as it, as it, behind the scenes. Hmm. What is it that makes you happy, Guy? I think what makes me happy is a feeling that I'm contributing to the wider society that I live in, uh, a feeling that I... I'm enjoying time with my family and that I'm intellectually stimulated. And the final question, as a neurologist, how do you understand happiness? <laughs> Gosh, that's I think that's more of a philosophical question <laughs> rather than a, a neurological uh, question. I think that, you know, happiness like beauty is in the eye of the beholder and people have different definitions of what happiness is. And I think that you need to work that out for yourself as an individual. Dr. Guy Leshtoner, thank you so much for coming on 20 Questions With. It was absolutely brilliant to hear your 20 answers. Thanks very much, Matthew. Thanks for having me.